635, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. A lot of stuff on today's agenda. Obviously, we will continue to discuss ramifications for the horrible shooting that occurred Sunday night and its aftermath today and yesterday. Um, That will be obviously one series of conversations that we're going to be having over the course of the next three and a half hours. A lot of other stuff going on. As I was saying just a minute ago, the United States Supreme Court is going to be hearing arguments today about the way the state legislature redrew voting districts back in 2011. The, the, the term you hear a lot is gerrymandering, and as we'll talk about in a little bit, what gerrymandering means is redrawing districts typically for political purposes. There are a number of, number of cases that say what is illegal types of gerrymandering. For example, you can't draw a district to concentrate, for example, black voters in one particular district to uh, eliminate or limit their influence um, because you put them all in one district. Similarly, you can't draw districts in such a way that spread out the black vote. So um, you lose, they lose, people who are black lose any sort of voting power. The challenge today isn't based on race or religion. They argue, the argument is that the way the districts were redrawn in Wisconsin concentrate Democratic voters in certain areas and Republican voters in certain areas, and as a result, they pretty much guarantee that the Democratic areas are always going to be Democratic, the Republican areas are going to always be Republican, and because of the geography of the state, not necessarily the way the population is distributed, that means that the Republicans are going to always win, and there's a challenge to that. The Democrats essentially saying the reason they're losing elections is because, well, the way the districts are redrawn. Now, of course, this argument ignores the fact that in Wisconsin, you have certain pockets that are heavily Democratic, where lots and lots of Democrats live, like the city of Milwaukee, um, like Dane County, like the city of Madison. So the question becomes, all right, doesn't it make more sense if all the Democrats geographically live in an area, I mean, do you split up Milwaukee County into three congressional districts, for example, to spread Democrats out? That's going to be the argument the Supreme Court's going to hear. I think it is utter and complete nonsense to suggest that the reason that Democrats are losing elections is because of the way the districts are drawn. We're going to be talking right after the 9 o'clock hour to somebody who's been intimately involved in this case, in file, including filing a friend of the court brief. So that's coming up. We'll be discussing that. Um, as everyone knows, I think I am a huge fan and student of pop culture. I I have many soundtracks of my life, and Tom Petty was one of my very, very favorite artists. Tom Petty passed away. There there were initial reports that um, he had died yesterday. Those reports turned out to be premature. He was in very, very serious condition, and now he has passed. We're going to be talking about the legacy of Tom Petty. All sorts of stuff coming up on today's program beyond just the situation in Las Vegas. But we start off today's show with three big things, like we start off every show. Story number one. Yesterday, I think many of us woke up, we turned on the radio news, maybe we turned on the TV, and we saw the first reports of what had happened in Las Vegas on Sunday night. I think for most of us, we were genuinely shocked, dismayed, appalled, And our thoughts went out to the victims 
and the family members of the victims. And, and that, that was just the, the natural reaction. It is unfortunate now for the second time in essentially 16 months, the reports have been largest mass casualty situation in the history of the United States. And obviously people wanted more details about this. That did not stop some from deciding to take to social media to voice their thoughts on this. Now, many of the people who operate on the Internet are in kind of these like dark corners that go into the weird conspiracy theories and and they operate under aliases and you do not know who they are. And there are people like that on the right and there are people like that on on the left. People who are just kind of way, way, way out there, which is one of the reasons I always say to people, well, you know, if you're ever in a news story or something, I would advise you not to read the comment section because as a general rule, it's it's not going to make you feel better. You're not going to learn anything. And chances are you'll, you'll be dumber after spending that, that 15 minutes going through that because a lot of the people who choose to go on there, particularly in the immediate aftermath of things, don't know what they're talking about. In some cases are genuinely evil. All right, so here is the story. Now, again, you perhaps had a number of reactions after you heard about the shooting. What happened? Where was this? Who did it? How did they get the guns in there? How did they stop them? How many people were hurt? How awful could this have been? Here is what a person named Haley Geftman Gold did. Now, Haley Geftman Gold is probably somebody that you had never heard about before. She is an attorney. She was a senior counsel, and she was a vice president at CBS Television. All right? So this is not some anonymous crank sitting in their kitchen or their mother's basement. I mean, this is a woman who has a pretty darn good job. Vice president, senior counsel at CBS TV. For reasons that, again, pass understanding... Ms. Geffman Gold decided to take to Facebook in the immediate aftermath of the story and write essentially that she had no sympathy that the Republican gun toters killed in Las Vegas do not deserve sympathy for what happened. Her assumption was, of course, that because these were people who were attending a country music concert, that they were essentially probably going to be Republican voters. So in other words, she had no sympathy for the fact that these people were killed because, well, they were Republican voters and they probably supported gun rights. She posts this on Facebook, on the Internet. And, of course, there is a reaction. Before she can take it down... It's, you know, it's their screen captures and stuff. So, I mean, it is, in fact, out there. Her bosses immediately come out and fire her because of this. The follow-up story is her lawyer is now complaining about um, the reaction that she's gotten. In the last few hours, my client, her family and friends have been bombarded by online death, unimaginable, in, un, online death threats, unimaginable in quantity and detail. We beg people to show love and support to survivors and loved ones in Las Vegas and their own lives instead of creating more violence. So the lawyer for this woman who posts this hateful post is now complaining, gee, she's getting this awful blowback. Now, death threats are, of course, never, ever, ever appropriate. 
But when you take to social media to essentially say you have no sympathy for the 59 people who have turned out to be dead and the 500 or more people who are injured as a result of the shooting because they are probably Republican gun toters, what sort of response do you expect? All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want to start off today with sort of a why question. Why is it that you think somebody like this woman, a responsible, she's an attorney, she's a senior executive at, at CBS, she has a responsible position. Why is it that you think she would think it was appropriate to post something like this. Is this what she truly believes? Was she drunk? Do you think that she thought she could just simply get away with this? What motivates somebody to say something like this on social media? I have a theory, but I'd like to know yours. 414-799-1620. It's 844. This is Jeff Wagner. 620 WTMJ. It's 848, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMD. Now, her full post, um, this is the now former attorney, senior counsel, executive at CBS Television. Um, Her full post was, if they wouldn't do anything when children were murdered, which I think is a reference to Sandy Hook, I have no hope that repugs will ever do the right thing. I'm actually not even sympathetic because country music fans often are Republican gun toters. This is this response of this woman in the immediate aftermath of the shooting in Las Vegas. I'm actually not even sympathetic because country music fans often are Republican gun toters. CBS has now fired her sorry butt, which I think is appropriate. But I guess the question becomes, what motivates people to to do this? Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're first. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. I think this lady is addicted to social media. So are millions of other people, and nobody's saying anything about it. I think these days we can't get away from our phone, and everybody has to post something, regardless how stupid it might be. It's just a shame. I see it constantly every time we go out. Nobody, I mean, people walking around with their phone in their hand, walking into a restaurant or whatever. It's like crazy out there. Yeah. Do you think, but but at the same, okay, and and look, and I know exactly what you're talking about. I was in a restaurant last night with my wife, and we were looking around, and and everybody at the different tables had had cell phones out. We were actually commenting on it. We were actually even talking to, to each other. But I guess it's one thing to be addicted to social media. What motivates people to post, especially people in positions of responsibility, to post hateful, stupid things like this? I, you know, I, I, I couldn't say, I couldn't see what was in her mind to post yeah. something like this. Any life, regardless, black, green, blue, purple, yellow, Republican, left, right, is um, is a life. Well, yeah. And, and you've got to value that. You know, you yeah. might disagree with that person, but how can you not feel sympathy for these people? Well, well exactly. No, thank, exactly. I mean, th- this is their song. Gee, country music voters, p- country music listeners tend to be Republicans, so I don't feel any sympathy for them. Okay, I have an interesting text here. Um, although I do not agree with the CBS executive's position, that's good. I do think it is somewhat sad that an individual cannot have their own thoughts, even though I disagree with them, and then suffers the ramifications in her personal life when this did not occur in her workplace. Huh. I, I couldn't disagree more. I mean, the, the reality see, this, this is what social media, this is what social media is. And if you 
the, the truth of the matter is that when you are in a position of prominence at a particular point and, and being you know a senior counsel um, at a prominent television network, yeah, that, that, is a, that is a position of prominence, and your personal life does, in fact, merge with your public life. And well, I'm sorry, I have no sympathy at all. I understand you have a First Amendment. The First Amendment right to comment, though, only says that government can't restrict your rights to say things. It doesn't say that there aren't consequences for what you say. And when you put a post like this up there, essentially saying, hey, these people got what they deserve because they're most likely Republican voters in the aftermath of the largest mass murder in American history. Yeah, you you deserve. I mean, CBS, I think, had no choice but to do exactly what it did, which is which is fire her. Sarah in Madison. Sarah, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. I I, I liken it to. Uh Back in the day, you used to call it liquid courage, where you had a few beers and you weren't afraid to say something. I think social media has given people social media courage, where they just blurt out what they're really thinking, but without thinking about the consequences. No filter at all. No, no filter, and they can spew their hatred or whatever, and then... Then they play Monday morning quarterback, oh, my gosh, I didn't really mean that, or my First Amendment rights, or don't pick on me. Right. Um, Or I'm a victim. I'm a victim because I'm getting really hateful things in response. Well, no kidding. You post something like this, Yeah. what do you think people are going to respond? I mean, you want to talk about poking the bear, my goodness. Exactly. People will post things that they wouldn't say to anybody's face. Yeah, I've always, I, I've, I've noticed that, Sarah, the vast majority of emails I get are interesting and, or, or supportive or just, you know, people wanting to engage. And then you have a handful of the haters and the trolls that are out there who post these things. And I, I think it's exactly the same thing. I'm willing to bet that they would never say it to your face. But again, because they're sitting in their kitchen or their mom's basement or whatever, that they feel compelled to do this because the Internet gives them that anonymity. And that's one of the dark sides of the Internet. No question about it. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. All right. Now, here, here is, I, I agree with what we've talked about before. I do think there, there's something larger to this. And, and I have a text which makes that point. Um, that, that There's the, what Mitch says. These haters are on the rosters of all the major media outlets. They routinely converse with each other with like-mindedness. They are infected. She was just too stupid not to exercise restraint. I think there is something to this. And, and again, I, I don't I don't want to necessarily just tie it into the, the major media. But I, I think that there is, I have no doubt, in this woman's world, in this woman's narrow world, all she had, she has surrounded herself with the, the like-minded people. And look, I understand this can happen on the right, too. But in this case, it happened on the left. She has surrounded herself with these like-minded people. I, my guess is her entire world centers around uber-lefties like her who, you know, think that, oh, my gosh, Republicans are evil. We've got to confiscate guns. They didn't do anything about Sandy Hook. How appalling all this is. My guess is this woman never even realized the impact of what she was saying because she thought it, she believed it, 
those country western they're, they're just a bunch of stupid republican voters they get what they deserve this is the culture that they've created and my guess is the vast majority of the friends the people that this woman hangs out with socially really while they might be smart enough not to put that in print and while they might not necessarily say gee these people deserve to get killed they're probably like oh these are just these icky stupid republicans i mean they they've just they're going to now sort of they're sowing what they ended up reaping my guess is the majority of people that she thought she was writing to that she was interacting in her little circle of people on facebook feel exactly the same way and so it never even occurred to her that gee this might be over the top she's probably thinking oh this is I, this is going to be sort of clever i'm going to get all sorts of likes on this without recognizing the overall ramifications and this is what happens when you end up with some of these blinders on and yeah i understand she has a right to post this stuff but you know what this is the type of situation where CBS had no choice but to do exactly what it did, which is to fire her. The question is going to be, you know, what law firm in L.A. is going to pick her up? And my guess is there'll probably be two or three signed up to do that today. It's 855. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in just a couple minutes, big story number two, Wisconsin goes to the United States Supreme Court. It is a case that is being watched all across the country. We're going to talk about it. It's 856. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, 620 WPMJ. Back in January, the Pack stunned the Cowboys with a Mason Crosby field goal in overtime that ended their season in the playoffs. Remember that game? Sunday, it's a rematch in Big D. Our Packers game day coverage will begin with Packers preview at 1 p.m. Sunday, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Coming up in less than eight minutes, we're going to be talking to a guy who's intimately involved with the case that is being argued in front of the United States Supreme Court today. It will have a huge say on what districts we vote in. So stick around for that. Right now, though, it is 8.59. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We'll be back right after the news. It's 9.08. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Big story number two, Wisconsin redistricting in front of the United States Supreme Court. Now, let me just, just back into this for a second so people understand. Every 10 years, electoral districts in all states have to be redrawn. Why do they have to be redrawn? Because the districts are supposed to have the same number of people in each of them. So in Wisconsin, there's 99 assembly districts. There's 33 Senate districts. Three assembly districts equal one Senate district. And the districts are supposed to have approximately the same number of people. You can't have a Senate district in Milwaukee that has 400,000 and a Senate district um, on the northwest part of the state that has, you know, 50 people. So people move over a 10-year period of time. So every 10 years, the districts have to be redrawn. The process is that the legislature does it in Wisconsin unless the legislature can't agree, and then sometimes you have to have the court system that comes in. In 2011, Republican-controlled legislature redrew the districts, and the way they redrew the districts has created controversy. Democrats in the state argue that the principal reason, maybe the only reason why they don't win more state Senate seats or more state assembly seats is because of the unconstitutional way that these districts were redrawn. 
That's what the Supreme Court is going to be deciding today. And to talk about this case, we're joined by Rick Essenberg from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Rick, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Um, your group, um, you are you are actually part of this lawsuit. You filed a friend of the court brief with the Supreme Court on the side of uh, the state of Wisconsin, right? That's right, we did. Okay, let's let's for for people who whose eyes kind of glaze over when they hear redistricting this. But let's talk a little bit about what the essence of this lawsuit is and where you see this going. Well, the, the plaintiffs in this case has, have brought a claim that the Republicans unconstitutionally drew these districts because they preferred Republicans over Democrats. That is, they gerrymandered the district. This is a word to mean that they... They drew the districts intentionally in a way that would benefit um, Republican candidates at the expense of Democratic candidates. And this is a theory that the United States Supreme Court has recognized um, might possibly support a claim. But over the past 30 to 40 years, the courts have been unable to come up with a standard for determining what a partisan gerrymander is. That is, we always know that the party in power will try to benefit itself, but how do you determine whether or not they have gone too far? And when you're dealing with courts, you have to have a relatively uh, straightforward rule. You have to have a principle that can be mutually applied. We don't just tell judges to go out and you know do the right thing because that would be making policy. That would be applying law. Because the courts have been unable to come up with this standard, in all of these cases, the, the parties that have uh, come to court and alleged a partisan gerrymander have lost. But here in Wisconsin, they won. And they won because they, they claim to have come up with a new standard that they call the efficiency gap, but um, really amounts to a requirement that the legislature... Um, uh, have a number of Democrats and Republicans that is proportionate to all of the people in the state that voted for Democratic and Republican candidates. Okay, let, let's back up a step for a sec. Normally, when we talk about illegal ger- gerrymandering, we're talking about things like race. For example, right? For example, you you couldn't draw districts to either concentrate all the black voters into one district or to spread out all the black voters so their, their impact would be diluted. You, you can't draw districts based on race. Now, we know things like that, right? Right. That, that, that's true. It's a little bit complicated because the Voting Rights Act sometimes requires yeah. you to pack and create a majority minority district. But you're absolutely right. The Supreme Court has said that you can't you know, draw maps in a way to intentionally disfavor a racial group. Now, in Wisconsin, and I was making this point earlier, the, the, there ten, the Democratic voters tend to concentrate in, in urban areas. Um, Mil- City of Milwaukee, for example, heavily Democratic. Milwaukee County, overall, heavily Democratic. The city of Madison, very, very Democratic. What's wrong with drawing a district that, again, if, if, if the city of Milwaukee or Milwaukee County is one district, doesn't that make more sense than trying to, I don't know, spread out Democratic voters in Milwaukee County all up and down the lakeshore, for example? Well, right, and, and, and that's the problem with the plaintiff's theory. The idea that um, 
when if you you know we don't hold a statewide election for Democrats and Republicans in the legislature. We hold 99 individual geographic races. There's no reason to believe that the outcome of each of these individual races will be proportionate to the total number of people who voted for Democrats and Republicans, unless you believe that Democratic and Republican voters are equally geographically concentrated in this state. But as you point out, we know that they're not. Uh, Heavily in Milwaukee, heavily in Dane County. We see this in maps of the United States after every election cycle. You know, they show results by county in the United States. And the United States is a sea of red with a couple of islands of deep blue. And Wisconsin looks like that, too. And so there is this natural advantage that Republicans have when you're drawing geographic districts. And what the plaintiffs are asking in this case, ironically, is for a constitutional command that districts be gerrymandered to make up for this natural disadvantage that Democrats have. Which, I mean, if if the court would accept something like this, in practical terms, I, I'm imagining the legislature then having to draw, for example, an assembly district that starts, oh, I, I don't know, in, in the city of Milwaukee and runs up through Mequon along the lakefront in order to try to say, okay, we've got X number of Democrats and X number of Republicans and balance them out. I, I can just see all sorts of really, really weird districts as opposed to what's now what happens now where you you've got contiguous you know the, the district is i don't know a 2 mile radius where people all live together right and that's an important point because what what was true of the maps that are drawn in, uh, by the republicans in 2011 is they don't look like that they're not odd shaped in fact the the lower court in this case it was a three judge panel and two judges held that the maps were unconstitutional and one Judge Griesbach dissented. But even the two that held it was unconstitutional admitted that the Republicans had not departed from traditional redistricting principles. In other words, these maps are contiguous and compact. They don't look odd. They're not shaped like a, you know, a salamander or a sacred Mayan bird, as you know, sometimes you see these, these maps that are drawn and they look really, really bizarre. These maps don't look like that. They comported with traditional redistricting principles and yet, and yet, somehow, uh, the lower court found it a gerrymander. The now, the the court appears. Uh, everything I read about this suggests that, and again, you could go broke trying to predict what a supreme what, what any court is going to do. But it appears to be once again that Justice Kennedy is the swing vote. You've got the four more liberal justices who appear perhaps willing to buy into this, the four more conservatives who appear to have nothing to do with it, and Justice Kennedy once again the swing vote. Right. So, so what, where the court has been on this in the past is there are four, the four, four conservative justices, not the precise ones that are on the court now, but, but two of the four, uh, concluded in 2004 that we just have to give up on this. We can't come up with a manageable standard for determining how much partisanship is too much. And so the remedy for this has to be someplace else. It's not in the courts. And there were four liberal justices, and they said, no, we think that we should go forward with these claims, although they couldn't agree among themselves as to what the standard should be. And then there was Justice Kennedy in the middle, and he said, I can't think of a standard either, but maybe someday somebody will, and so I'm not going to give up the ghost yet. So uh, the question is, what will Justice Kennedy do in this case? Will he continue to 
you know, I think he's really effectively rejected this proportionality requirement in the past. Will he continue to do this, or will he decide that there's some type of a claim? So, it's, you know, the conventional wisdom is that this is going to be five to four with Kennedy casting the deciding vote. I think there's another possibility. I think there's a possibility that the four conservative justices would say, look, there's no standard, so you can't bring a claim like this. And then there might be a couple others, maybe Kennedy, Breyer, uh, maybe Kagan, who will say, uh, yes, you can bring a claim, but you at least have to show that the state departed from traditional redistricting principles. And because Wisconsin didn't do it, didn't do that, Wisconsin still wins. Moving forward, I, and, I, and I, I, some of the, the rhetoric about this is incredibly heated. I, I read so much stuff. There's many people that are out there that are seriously suggesting that the, 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 they believe the reason the Democrats have lost elections in this state over the course of the, the last eight or nine years is simply because of redistricting. I, I guess I just don't understand how moving forward – you're ever going to be able to, given the fact that people voluntarily cluster in certain areas, I don't understand how moving forward you're ever going to be able to change that dramatically, again, unless you're trying to draw really weird districts that bring part of the city in Milwaukee in with Waukesha County. Well, in, you know, in your introduction, you said that if the, if the legislature uh, can't agree, then the courts draw the maps. And that's what happened in 2000. The courts drew the maps. So nobody would claim that these maps were biased in favor of Republicans. Now, in the case that's before the court today, the plaintiffs say that if there's a proficiency efficiency gap or a proportionality gap of more than seven points, then there's something presumptively wrong with the maps. Well, in five of the seven... Uh, elections, where we use the maps that were drawn by the courts, the Republicans had this efficiency gap advantage of more than seven points. And so you're exactly right. There's always going to be this natural disadvantage that Democrats have because their voters tend to be more heavily clustered. And the only way you get around that is by gerrymandering for competitiveness or gerrymandering to make up for the the partisan disadvantage that Democrats have, and that's every bit as partisan as what the Republicans were are being accused of doing. Right, and by disadvantage, we're talking about the, the ability to have more Democrats in a particular area. The way these maps are drawn right now, it, it pretty much, because Democrats tend to cluster in urban areas, it pretty much guarantees, for example, that you're never going to have a Republican that's going to be able to win a contested election in the city of Milwaukee or, for example, in, in Madison, because there's super majority of Democrats that are there. So in those areas, they have huge advantages that are just be, by virtue of where people choose to live. Right. And, 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 and the, 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 the districts that tend or the areas that tend to uh, Democrats are much more um, heavily so than those that uh, you right. know tend to go uh, uh, Republican, and so it becomes very very difficult uh, not to have this so-called proportionality gap. And you know, these maps were uh, drawn in 2011 after the 2010 election. The 2010 election was conducted under court-drawn maps, and the Republicans swept the board. Right. And uh, and we're able to you know uh, to draw the maps that they drew. When can we? When do you anticipate a decision on this? Not till June, perhaps. Yeah, well, you know how it is. You know, when you have a, a you know a difficult case like this where there are multiple writings, the court's likely to be fractured. Those decisions tend to come out at the end of the term. So 
yeah, I think we're looking at uh, late June, which means, I think, that even if the court were to side with the plaintiffs, there could not be new maps in place for the 2018 election. Would this affect congressional districts as well? No, congressional districts are not involved in this, nor are state Senate districts. This is only assembly districts in the state of Wisconsin. Rick Essenberg, president of the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, uh, Rick's group is has filed a friend-of-the-court brief on the side of Wisconsin. Case is going to be argued today. I am extremely skeptical. I, I just have to tell you. I mean, the, the reality is people cluster. You have heavily Democratic areas in Milwaukee, for example. If this argument were to go into place, you would have all sorts of weird districts running, you know, through various counties. It's just the bottom line is if Democrats want to win elections in Wisconsin, there's got to be more of them, and they've got to live in different areas. It's 922. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, I think any person with any sense of, of decency, perhaps unlike the woman who used to be the lawyer for CBS for CBS TV, but all of us had to be appalled at what happened Sunday evening um, in Las Vegas. Everybody knows the story. You had a, a 64-year-old man with no criminal history a, at all, um, who lived about 90 miles outside of Las Vegas in a $400,000 house, retired um, from, you know, uh, from an aviation company, um, who checks into the Mandalay Bay Hotel, and apparently in a very, very pre-planned activity, brings over the course of, I presume, three days, 23 different weapons into the room and then opens fire on the, this open-air music festival on, on Sunday evening. Um, there's still details that we do not know. If you listen to the sound of the shots, it sounds like the man is firing an automatic weapon. In this country, as a general rule, it is illegal for people to own machine guns slash automatic weapons. You you can, if you have one, you have to have a special permit issued by ATF. In most cases, you have to have approval of the, the local sheriff. You can only buy them through certain licensed types of, of gun dealers. So it's it's not, it is in all likelihood, if the man had an automatic weapon, it was not legal for him to have that. Now, it is possible to take a semi-automatic weapon and convert it so that it fires in a fully automatic fashion. Now, it's illegal for you to do that, again, unless you have one of these permits, but there are ways that you can do it. There's stuff that you can buy. You can go to the how-tos on on the Internet that explain how you can do it. It is also, I, I guess there are certain things that you can buy legally on the Internet or in gun stores which would allow you to increase the firing rate of a semi-automatic rifle. The, the difference being an automatic weapon is one where you just pull the trigger once and it fires repeatedly till it's out of, out of ammunition. Uh, a semi-automatic rifle is something where you have to pull the trigger each shot. And the difference, of course, is the number of shots you can get off in, in succession. But, you know, regardless of whether it's an automatic weapon or semi-automatic weapon, you can fire a lot of shots in a hurry one way or the other. 
Now, there is some speculation out there, and we don't know for sure, that the guy might have had uh, one or two of these enhancements that allow semi-automatic firearms to fire essentially like an automatic. One is something known as a trigger crank. What that does is it, it bolts onto the trigger guard of a semi-automatic rifle, and then what you do is you turn the crank, kind of like the old Gatling gun, I guess, and it you, you turn the crank, and that depresses the trigger faster, like three times per rotation. So imagine the old like Gatling guns that you'd see in the Westerns and stuff. This is apparently something, who knew, that you could put onto a semi-automatic rifle, and you could fire faster if you're, if you're turning this. Um, in addition, there's also something that they have, and, and they might have had one of these called a bump stock, B-U-M-P, bump stock. And this is a device that, that modifies the stock of the gun so that it's the, the recoil of the gun helps pull the trigger, so you can pull the trigger faster. And again, you know, details will emerge as to whether he had one or both of these, but it is possible that what he did was had a, a, a weapon that he was legally allowed to purchase, and then he bought one of these things on the Internet that allowed him to convert it so that it could end up firing faster. Now, here is somebody who I, I was watching the interviews yesterday, and they, they interviewed a, a guy who's a gun store owner in, in the Vegas area who sold him like three guns uh, over the course of the last year. And the, the gun dealer feels just horrible. I mean, he's a regular licensed gun dealer who ran background checks on him. He said, you know, there, there's just, there was nothing that came up in this guy's background. There was no reason for him not to be able to legally possess firearms. So at least thus far, it appears that the guns he had, he, he legally owned and then perhaps had converted. Now, again, if he's got automatic weapons and he doesn't have a permit and doesn't have the license, it's illegal to possess those. He had an arsenal. He had accumulated a lot of rounds of ammunition. My guess is, and it's just a guess, that the, these guns that he had, he had been buying over a period of time. Like I say, three of the guns that he got in Las Vegas from this Las Vegas gun dealer, he bought over the last year. So it's not like he went in in the last week or so and, and bought 15 or, or 20 firearms. So it appears he, at least at this point in time, accumulated the guns that he had legally over a period of time. He had absolutely no criminal record no history of mental illness, no history of domestic violence that would have prohibited him from being able to, you know, own a firearm, all right? And yet he engaged in this horrific act of violence. Well, as we talked about a little bit yesterday, I mean, but before we had any idea how bad the carnage was, you had a number of people, starting with Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator who wants to be president, coming out and saying, okay, this is, we've got to take on the NRA. This means we, we need more gun control. There's things that we need to do. The New York Times came out with this editorial listing five, six, seven steps that they think that we need to do to prevent mass shootings. Now, in the New York Times editorial, all the different steps that they had, I, I don't think any of them would have stopped this man from being able to procure the, these firearms. Universal background checks. Oh, okay, well, all right, that's closing the gun store loophole. Well, I don't, I don't think none of those would have stopped this. There is a frustration when you have these mass shootings. We all want to do something. My belief is a lot of the people that are talking about gun control, what they really want 
Because really the only effective means of quote-unquote gun control, of preventing stuff like this from happening, seems to me, is actually confiscating guns and going around and getting guns out of, of people's hands. But let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We should all be appalled by this. And... I mean, the idea that this is the for the second time in 16 months, we are now saying the largest mass shooting in American history, that is not acceptable. But I guess let's tee this up. I mean, is this a call for gun control? What could have been done? What should have been done to stop this man from being able to do this? And short of actually going around and saying, we are confiscating weapons, we're going to take weapons away from people. No longer can you own hunting rifles. No longer can you own the, these semi-automatic rifles. Short of doing that, is there anything that would have realistically stopped this, this carnage? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. I'll tell you where I come down on this as well. It's 942. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 946, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. See, I, I know sometimes I irritate maybe you because I'm not an absolutist when it comes to the Second Amendment. I think you can put reasonable limits on the ability of people to, to own firearms. I don't think felons should have firearms. I think it is perfectly reasonable to say if you're going to have an automatic weapon, you, you have to get a special permit and a special license for that. If you want the bazooka, same sort of, of thing. So, I mean, I'm, I'm open to reasonable measures of, of gun control. When I hear gun control, though, especially in the context of what happened the other night in Las Vegas, let, let's be honest. What people are doing is they're talking about, we don't think people should have guns. That's what they're actually saying, because otherwise, all these different measures, all the things that the New York Times editorial board is talking about yesterday, it, it it wouldn't have stopped this maniac who was legally able to own firearms. Now, maybe he converted one of the firearms illegally, but that's already illegal to do that. 414-799-1620 is the number. Let's start with uh, Joe in Appleton. Joe, good morning. Good morning. What do you, you think? Know, first of all, the events obviously are very tragic, and, and it's sad to see this happen. But the reality of it is is that laws would not have prevented this action, actions from happening. Crazy people are going to obtain guns regardless of, of the means. And the reality of it is that the Second Amendment, the premise of the Second Amendment was created for us to protect ourselves against the government should we need to. The government has very powerful weapons. I should be able to have that same capability to protect myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess, or, 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 or if crazy people, if, I, who knows what motivated this guy to decide to kill people. But if, if you're motivated to do something like that, um, there are ways. I mean, we we've seen the people that, that show up and, and set off the bombs. You know that, that you know that, that drive the trucks. You know through large crowds of people and things like that. I guess the problem is living in a free society. We are always going to be vulnerable to some of these type of things. And I understand that that's not a satisfactory response to a lot of people. But again, short of going around and saying we're going to confiscate people's firearms, I I don't know. What sort of gun control measures stop things like this? Exactly. And, and taking into account, 9-11 happened because of box cutters, not because of guns. Right. So it doesn't mean guns create these issues. Crazy right. people create these issues. Right, exactly. Now, I, I, look, I, I'm not naive. The, the access to firearms, you know, gives, gives an, an outlet 
for crazy people to act out in this fashion. So, I mean, I get that. I understand it. But part of the problem then becomes, you know, what what do you do when you have the, you know, legitimate, you know, firearms owners? Um, I have Kristen who writes, Jeff, gun control hurts the citizens that use them responsibly. If the criminal or someone like the gentleman in Las Vegas wants to get a weapon, they, they can. And, and that weapon might not necessarily be the, the firearm that, that's there. I just seriously wrestle with this idea. Okay, universal background checks. All right, whether you do that or or not, close the gun show loophole, does that stop this guy from being able to do this? And I I seriously doubt it. What would stop him? Well, if we have a police state and we go around and we require people to turn in their guns and we take them away, and then every time we find a bad guy with a gun, we put them in prison for a lengthy period of time. But, of course, we're not willing to do that either. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Matt in Milwaukee. Matt, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Jeff. Yeah, um, tying in with what you guys are saying, basically you need two things for this sort of thing to happen, the gun and the crazy person slash evil motive. Um, and, you know, the liberals just always focus on the gun. Well, ask them this. Which would you rather have in a society? A lot of guns and a lot of really happy, peaceful, loving people or a lot of really crazy, evil people that want to kill others and no guns, you know, so you can, you, you don't, if you get, all you need to do is get rid of one of those things um, and you can solve the issue. So people would let them focus on taking away guns and that's the violent approach because, you know, what's going to happen when they try taking away guns, a lot more violence because there's a lot of people like myself, they're going to draw their line in the sand when it comes to that sort of thing. Right. And um, as a even, practical matter, you know, you're not able to do that. I mean, that that's just, okay, if we were... If we were back, you know, in, in 1776 or 1780 or whatever, and, and we were trying to decide, you know, people's right to own firearms, maybe you could have a legitimate debate about should the Second Amendment be in the Constitution. But the reality is people own firearms now. You're not going to be able to go around and confiscate guns right. from people. That, that's just the reality of our society. And it, and, and it, people always say, well, look at Europe, look at Europe. Well, okay, gun ownership rights have been historically different in, in Europe. You're, we're not going to be able to go out and take firearms away. And I guess, my issue becomes, I, I don't know, um, how do you deal with like a hunting culture? What, what are we going to do? If we outlaw long rifles, does that mean that you have to check them at a local armory and sign them out for 12 hours if you want to go deer hunting? I mean, we're not going to do that, not in reality. Oh, thanks for yeah. calling. Now, I guess yeah. I, and I will say that, again, I think, I think that it's fair to, to look, look at this situation. I am curious as to did he take these did he did he were these automatic weapons you know did he illegally have automatic weapons and if so how did he get them did he have semi-automatic weapons that he converted to um fully automatic um in violation of the law i mean did he have some of these things and, and i look i i'm a gun owner okay I, I i am um but but i mean i will say I, I don't toe the line up and down when it comes to the NRA stuff. I'm I'm the guy here saying that I, I think Wisconsin would be foolish to, for example, do away with the concealed carry permit requirement and just allow anybody to go around carrying a gun concealed anytime they want. I think that would be foolish. I think I think it is fair to look at some of the these modifiers. Uh, and I guess I, I've just never even explored this kind of what I would think would be the dark side. I don't understand. Why an average citizen, for example, should be able to, for $40, I don't understand why it would conflict with a Second Amendment right to say, 
you don't need a device that you stick into the trigger of a gun that allows you to hand crank it and fire as many bullets as you possibly can. I, I don't understand why a person needs that. And if the argument is, well, it's my right to have that, I, I don't know that you have a right to be able to fire as many shots as you possibly can. So, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I haven't really thought about that, frankly, but I don't, I don't understand why an average person needs that. I don't understand why an average person needs a bump stock that allows you to effectively take a rifle and turn it into a machine gun with these type of devices. If you want to look at examining stuff like that, I think it's fair. At the same time, I again, I, I don't know how you necessarily stop somebody from jury rigging their own version of that. Um, you can make it illegal, but that's not going to change the overall you know, di- dynamic. 414-799-1620 is the number. We continue the conversation in a moment. It's 953. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 956. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMG. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people who, you know, are, are gun owners disagree with me when I say, gee, I'm, I'm not sure if it's true that for $40 you can buy some device on the Internet that goes on the trigger guard of a rifle and allows you to crank the... Um, you know, crank the trigger so you turn essentially your, your semi-automatic rifle into a machine gun. I, maybe I think the majority of people would probably say, well, I don't understand why you need that for hunting or, or, or whatever. I mean, I, I think we if that's the type of thing you're talking about, well, I think that's something that's fair to look at. Now, again, even if you can't buy the things over the Internet, that, that doesn't mean that somebody's not going to be able to make up their home homemade version of this. But I, I think, you know, we have to be open to some reasonable measures. But the truth of the matter is, when I hear people throwing out the term gun control, what they're really talking about is confiscation. And I just don't see that happening. Dan in Port Washington. Dan, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Uh, I got a couple of comments. Uh, what I would do is I would took a, take a look at uh, installing RFID devices on the uh, automatic machine gun weaponry or conversion kits, and then um, just for those, and then because of high-powered rifles, and then have the hotels or whatever public places that want to have it, have those sensor devices. So if somebody comes in with one, said, uh, sir, could you please step to the side, please? And then they're registered, and they know who he is. Or it draws up something, but RFID and then other sensors would help security, would help also help notify somebody that somebody's bringing in something that yeah. looks like they're going to do that. And number two, that nobody has discussed, I'd like to see the president do this, take all the gun shop owners, NRA, top-level security, military personnel and create a panel keep the lefty liberals out of it and through all their discussions over a month or so come up with their ideas as to how they could improve their practice their practice and then come to congress and say these are measures we are willing to take and these are things that we can improve on but i think rfid on those machine guns because i'm going to tell you in closing that this guy took it to the next level oh, when yeah. he knocked out those windows and did a Lee Harvey with the, the the bullets that if there's somebody was hit to go 1,100 foot. Now, that, that nothing like this has happened to that level. And so I'm going to say RFID device on the very heavy. And if somebody says, I refuse to purchase that, oh, really? Okay. Then, then you don't need it. Yeah, no. no th- thanks for calling. No, that, that's – I mean, and again, I, I think – I, I, I mean, the problem is that the sides on this issue are so 
drawn drawn in that, that you have the the organizations that support gun rights that there's no compromise at all and so you get the nra in positions sometimes that i think are undefense indefensible and then of course you've got the left which really they want to take guns out of people's hands that that's it they might talk about other things they don't feel comfortable saying that but that's really what they want to do because they know a lot of the measures they're talking about isn't going to be effective i, I think we have to be more reasoned and reasonable about it and maybe there are some things again if, if this guy had some sort of trigger guard that turned a regular rifle into a machine gun, I mean, you, you do wonder, do people need to have something like that? Would have stopped this? I doubt it. It's 10 o'clock. It's 10.08. This is Jeff Wagner. So, J.D., I, I have an update on something, which is a tribute to you. Oh, really? Our, really? Well, I, I mean, I, I think of all of us, you are probably the one who most gets into the, like, the WTMJ players and the radio stuff. I do. I, I mean, I remember two years ago, because you really just started the station, right, when we first did that, and we're, we're all sitting around the first table read, and was it, uh, you were like Bob Cratchit's, you were Mrs. Cratchit or I something. I was Mrs. You? Cratchit. And, mm-hmm. and immediately, you're, fir- I mean, you're, you're into it, you're doing the accents, you're doing the voices, and all the rest <laughs> of us are going, my goodness gracious, you know, we've got a pro among oh, us. Well, that's, so, that's very nice. Well, it is, but okay, so our our... November 27th is, this year it is an original play. Two years ago we did a Christmas, our version of A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Last year was our version of A Wonderful Life. This year it is WTMJ Saves Christmas. Don't ask any of us how that is going to happen. You we, know? We, yeah, we don't know. We haven't seen it yet. And, and we don't until right. typically about a week beforehand. We know Wayne Larrabee is going to be the narrator. Um, Everybody participates. My po- my picture and Miller's were on the poster, but I don't think that means that we necessarily have bigger roles. Because <laughs> if you're counting on me to save Christmas, well, okay, you know, I got to save myself first. But anyways, the tickets went on sale yesterday at noon, and we really, because of all the stuff that was going on yesterday, we we didn't really well, perhaps sure. highlight that as much. Sure. Um, I, I just got an update. I ran into our director of innovation and marketing, you know, Jay Pat. I said, how are, how are the tickets selling? And he said they're about half gone already. Oh my goodness. Yeah, about he said about about fifty percent gone, and I, I bring that up only because this always sells out. And I don't know about you, but it, but it's true. Like two or three weeks before the show, I start getting emails or phone calls from listeners and from friends saying, "Yeah, we were meaning to go to that. You know, do you, can you reach into your drawer and pull out that, that those thirty tickets that you have?" And I keep saying, "I don't have a drawer that has thirty tickets." Right, and if it's sold out, it's sold out. I mean, there are fire codes. That's that's why there, it is a limited. You know, there's a limited amount of seats. Right, and so it's um, so on our first day. And again, this is sort of approximate, but I mean, again, the guy that handles all this told me we we sold about fifty percent of the tickets that's great the first day so I, I bring that up it's $25 a portion of that goes to the kids the kids Christmas but it, it's always a lot of fun but I, I just bring it up first of all because you are always the star of that oh. program you do a great job but but also again for people who are thinking about going and I, I know we've had a lot of repeat people I mean a lot of people that were there first year had a lot of fun and came the second year so I just we're when we say the tickets are going fast, this is not some sort of marketing thing to inspire people to go to the Internet. Buy now before they're all gone. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, they actually really might be all gone. Right. Exactly. So if you're thinking about going, my advice would be do not delay. Tickets went on sale yesterday. You can still get them. It's $25. Go to papstheater.org. You can you can buy them. A portion of the proceeds go to a good cause. And you can see us all, including Jane Matinair, who is always the star of the show. It's WTMJ oh, Saves Christmas. You're making me blush. Well, yeah. Yeah. We'll see what voice you get to end up. Uh, what voice you end up doing? I can tell, by the way, that now I'm 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 married because I I came down. It's been a week with this cold. I actually last I'm married on Friday. Last Tuesday, I am sitting at now 
my step grandson. Uh, it, it, you know, I've never, I, my my wife has four grandchildren. They're delightful. We were at uh, Cash's football game, flag football game, and I started to think, oh my gosh, I'm feeling like I'm feeling like I'm getting a little bit of an allergy. And then an hour and a half later, I have this full blown sore throat. And and so all last week leading up to the wedding, everybody is giving me every type of cold remedy available, ranging from. Ranging from take zinc, and here's vitamin C, and here's NyQuil, and here's the type of Sudafed that you have to sign for, and even something where they're saying, here, open this bottle of vinegar. We're going to make you this, like, potion with vinegar. What? Drink it down. Okay, I, I will. So, I mean, it's I, I, I did all that, got through the wedding, got through the weekend. Um, I still have the cold, and I, I get a note this morning from my wife saying, oh, congratulations. Um, you know, we're, we're sharing everything. I now have the cold. So, okay, it's all good. All good. Yesterday... It was a story that would have gotten, obviously, a lot more attention, I think, from the world of pop culture than it, than it did because of what was going on in Las Vegas. Um, Tom Petty, um, of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and of Mud Crush, um, Tom Petty, Petty who is, I, I think if you, if you ever had a chance to see Tom Petty in concert and you heard all the different songs, you would say, my gosh, I, I didn't realize that was his song, or I had forgotten that this was his song. I mean, he really is one of one of the greatest, I think, American singer-songwriters. And if you look at the, the body of work that, that Tom Petty had, I mean, it really is the, the great American songbook. There might be a couple other performers who would fit in that same category, but certainly I think Tom Petty would be there. Tom Petty passed away yesterday. He... He, he, they just last week completed a, a huge tour. They played two gigs at Summerfest during the summer, but they just finished up at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles last week. Um, Tom Petty apparently, and, and the reason I know this is I was driving last night. I was driving around, and I, I, I have Sirius satellite radio in my car, and I was listening to the Tom Petty channel. That's one of my, my presets, and they were taking phone calls from fans, and Tom Petty apparently um, had – was in severe hip pain. He was apparently scheduled to undergo hip surgery as soon as this last tour ended. And so he was doing the tour in, in a lot of pain because of the hip. Um, he suffered a massive heart attack and has, in fact, passed away at, at the age of 66. And last night as I was driving around, again, I had, I had the Tom Petty radio on, and I, I was listening to a number of the tributes that people who knew him or were involved with the radio station or involved with the band were doing. And, and you got an idea of how he had really touched you know, so many people's lives. And so how many people had, had seen, seen him and been entertained by him and for whom this was, again, the song track and the so- song book of, of their life. I want to open up the phone lines for one segment. 414 799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think you can make a strong argument that Tom Petty, for my generation at least, might be one of the top two or three, you know, greatest artists of our lifetime. I know he's given a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. So let's do one segment. You know, memories of Tom Petty. Did you see the Heartbreakers in, in concert? Did you like him? Um, what do you think about Tom Petty's passing? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 1015. It's 1018. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Um, Tom Petty. Uh, of Tom Petty. And I know this is a departure. We're not talking about politics. But 
It's certainly a current event. I mean, Tom Petty, who was, for many of us, the, the, the soundtrack of our, our lives. Um, Tom Petty passed away suddenly and surprisingly at the age of 66, a massive heart attack. I mean, if you think of, you know, some of, some of the songs that are just staples of FM radio, Refugee, Free Fallen, Into the Great Wide Open, Don't Come Around Here No More, just an incredible talent, an incredible performer, a mainstay at Summerfest, just a, a regular performer at Summerfest. Always, I probably saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers half dozen times. When I was listening to Tom Petty, Petty Radio last night, they had people calling in saying that they've seen the show a hundred times. Well, I didn't see it that much, but every time I went, it was a, a tremendous show. And, and candidly, I think this is, in many respects, if for my generation, this is the great American songbook. 414-799-1620. Were you a Tom Petty fan, and did, did you enjoy the shows and your thoughts on his passing? Dean in West Bend. Dean, you're on 620 WTMJ. Yeah, I was um, at a Tom Petty concert two years ago. I went, I got tickets, and I wasn't expecting anything. wasn't a real big Tom Petty fan, but liked his songs. But I left that concert so impressed and entertained. I just could not believe it. What a show he put on, and what a fantastic band he had. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Heartbreakers, of course, these guys, I mean, thanks for calling. One of the interesting things, and I was, I, I always knew a little bit of the history of the band, but like I said, last night as I was driving around, I was hearing more and more about it. I mean, this was, they started out doing, they, they were the opening act for bands like the Doobie Brothers and, and things like that. And they ultimately decided that, that that's not what they were going to do. They were either going to succeed or fail on, on their own. And, and that was it. They said, we're not going to, we're not opening for, and not to knock the Doobie Brothers or anything like that, but we're, what we're doing is something completely and totally different. And, and we're, we're going to sell it. And it's either going to succeed or it's not. I mean, you know, you think about all the different performers too that, that came out of, He's, he's out of Gainesville, Florida. I mean, so, you know, you're talking about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Um, you're, you're talking about the Allman Brothers from, from right down the way. Just an amazing time. Let's see. Um, Ezra writes, not only was Tom Petty in t- the top three of your generation, but he was among the top of mine. I saw Tom Petty in 2007 when I was 21, and the crowd was full of people my age. Tom Petty music is epic and it's ageless. Yeah, what I think... What I what I think happened is there's a, a lot of people in my generation. We raised our kids on, on Tom Petty's music, and, and that's that that's what you saw. I mean, you know, you you grow up, and now I understand that maybe there was a point in time where you grow up and you're rebelling and you don't want to hear mom and dad's music. But let let's face it, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers that that's. That's good tunes. And I think what you see is that you, you have those musical tastes that get passed down from generation to generation. And you're in a situation where you say, gosh, I, I grew up and I, that's, this was, you know, dad used to play, you know, those Tom Petty albums all the time. And we used to have that on in the car. Um, it was just, you know, and we enjoyed it and we grew up. And, and that's why I think perhaps you see a lot of the, 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 the quote unquote, the 20 the, the somethings mixed in with the 60 the somethings as well. And that says something for the the band and the type of music that they had, because a lot of times you go to shows I, I, and you look around and it's all people your age. And, and then you go to other shows and you look around and it's multi-generational. That's, um, you know, that's the situation. Okay, Dave in West Bend writes, he saw Tom Petty 
um, at the Palms on State Street. Boy, that brings back memories. They played two nights in a row. Yeah, the Palms Nightclub always used to um, uh, attract um, th- those types of bands. Uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen, legendary before the band hit it big, playing at the Palms. Joe in Milwaukee. Joe, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say, it felt like uh, like I lost an old friend. I never knew him personally, but he's been there. I'm 52. I've listened to him since you know, since I was a, a kid. Um, got a chance to see him live many times. Took my daughter this summer. Um, it was uh, it's, it's, this is probably of all the people that have died recently. This one has been the hardest to take. Yeah, a lot. I mean. A lot of lot of performers have gone this year. Um, Glenn Fry of the Eagles comes to mind. So did, did you, okay? So you took your daughter. Did obviously you, you raised her right and you raised her on Tom Petty's music, huh? Yes, yes. Yeah, and she said, "Am I going to know the songs?" I said, "You'll know just about every one." Yeah. And she had a great time. And when she heard about it, she texted me right away and she said, "I'm so glad I got a chance to see him this summer." Yeah, yeah. It, I remember the the first time I saw Tom Petty a number of years ago, um, and again, it's you kind of. I mean, you know some of the songs, but then they start playing them. You go, "Oh, I didn't realize that was his," or "I didn't realize that was his." And you know, you, you knew the you know the the big ones that they play, but then there's all these other ones. You say, oh, "Boy, I, I I didn't realize that was Tom Petty," or "I forgot he had that song." It is an incredible songbook that he had accumulated. He was just an amazing performer. He sure was. Now, thanks for the call. I mean, it's, and again, gone gone way too soon. Greg writes, my wife and I, we are both 30, born in 1987, saw him for the first time this summer at Summerfest. It was an incredible show. He sounded great live. What a great artist. Had a great library of music and crossed several genres over several decades. Um, so this, this passing actually, you know, bummed me out. Maybe it was just that it happened in conjunction with the Vegas shooting. No. I mean, he was a great performer, and 66 is way, 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 way too young. Sail on Tom Petty, rest in peace. It's 1024, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 927, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Is there anything in the background of Stephen Paddock that might have raised red flags to law enforcement, or was there truly no advance warning? Scott and Melissa share the newest details starting at 3 p.m. this afternoon on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. In advance of our news broadcast, Jane Matinair just came in. Jane, um, you, you grew up in rock and roll radio as opposed to... As opposed to guys like me who grew up in like talk radio and stuff. Well, I was music radio. I was more AC. It was more Adele contemporary. I wasn't. I wanted to be a rock chick, Jeff. I was never a rock chick. Oh, you're a rock chick in your heart. <laughs> I can. I, I can just tell. Tom Petty. Did you ever a Tom Petty fan? I was a big Tom Petty fan. Never saw him in concert. Have a good friend who saw him when he was here two years ago. Said it was one of the best shows she'd ever seen. Right. I mean, it's just I was. Um, I was just saying I, w- I was driving around yesterday and I, I had on the, the Tom Petty channel on Sirius, which is one of my, you know, that's one of my presets and stuff. And they had, you know, a number of people from the band who were calling in and just sharing thoughts. And I mean, I think part of it is this this came as just such a surprise. I mean, he just finished up that tour. You know, right? they did two shows at Summerfest. They just finished up the tour last week, literally a week ago at the Hollywood Bowl. And they were saying that he was having hip problems. And he was going to have to undergo hip surgery and stuff. His hips were apparently pretty messed up, but you wouldn't have known that from the performances. But nobody saw a massive heart attack coming. 
And what's what's really tragic is, from what I understand, he wanted to get off the road a little bit because he wanted he has a granddaughter, right? And he wanted to be able to spend more time with her, and that's it's just tragic. And I guess it just reinforces that we really need to appreciate every single moment of every single day. I I, I say that that that's my overall philosophy, and I say that to a lot of people about and kind of kind of like life is. Life is short. You know, people, we were talking about that yesterday in the context of this, this horrible thing that happened in Las Vegas. And people are, okay, well, maybe do I not want to travel here or there or whatever? And I guess my philosophy has always been, well, I mean, I, you don't want to do stuff that's stupid and reckless. But at the same time, if, if you've always wanted to go to London, just because there's been a couple activities in London, you know, don't, don't not go. Don't deprive yourself of that. Or if you love to go to Las Vegas, go, you know, go right. to Las Vegas. Cause this, if you love to go to concerts, I mean, just because you have the, the suicide bomber that shows up outside the door of the concert, I mean, don't deprive yourself of, of the fun stuff in life. Cause it is short. Well, and I, if, if you're going to live your entire life in fear, I, I think you're missing out on a lot of life. Right. Right. You know? And I certainly understand the concerns, and I certainly understand. Uh, uh, Melissa Barclay and I were just talking about this off the air. When I go to a movie theater now, I know where the exits are. Right. But I heard you talking about this yesterday. It's about preparations. It's right. about situational situ- awareness. Situational awareness, absolutely. Right. Even when my husband and I go to an airport now, I am looking in a different way at people just to be aware and just to have a, right. a plan in my head. You right. Know? But at the same time, you sit there. I mean, I know you traveled overseas earlier this year. Fran and I are doing a river cruise next October. I mean, it's like, okay, I, I've always wanted to see this part of the world. I've always wanted to do something like this. Am I not going to go because, well, okay, something bad can happen? Well, something bad can happen anywhere. Good heavens, something bad can happen every time you get in your car. Um, absolutely. But uh, I was curious. I mean, I'd, I'd seen Tom Petty about six times in concert, always Always a good show, and I was always amazed at the. Uh, you'd hear these songs, you go, "Oh, I forgot that was his song." You know, it was that, that he had kinda, so many hits, right? And even even the non, you know, not maybe right. they didn't get to number one, but right, you go, "Oh, that's his song." Yep. John Mellencamp is like that too. I, I saw, I've seen Mellencamp in concert a couple times, and you know, he starts playing the whole thirty or forty year repertoire. And you go, "Oh, I forgot that that was that was his song from right. twenty five years ago." But it's an amazing songbook. Okay, when we come back in just a couple minutes. He's back. It's back. What part of No Way does Chris Abley not understand? It's 1036, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Well... I was thinking of Chris Abley late last week. I live in Milwaukee County, and um, my uh, the auto registration on one of my cars came due. So I open up the registration fee, and, and there it is, $105. It is the $75 that you pay the state of Wisconsin for the, the privilege of, of owning your car and driving your car on the state roadways, which helps repair the, um, the roads throughout the state. And then, okay, that's 75 bucks. Where do you get the 30? Where's the extra 30? Well, thanks to the Milwaukee County Board and, and Chris Abley, um, you pay a vehicle registration fee, a wheel tax of $30 for the privilege of keeping your car in Milwaukee County. Now, keep in mind now that this, this wheel tax, that this wheel tax is not um, something that's 
Chris Abley pushed for. He wanted a $60 wheel tax, and the county board said, no, we're going to give you a $30 wheel tax. This was last year. And they put the matter up to a referendum vote. And they said, what do you think about you know having a $60 wheel tax? And the general public, by a vote of about 72 to 28, said, no, we don't want to pay $60. Well, Chris Abley, because... He doesn't think he can ever do anything wrong, and he's used to getting his way, and he's really rich, and he thinks he can get elected all the time. He doesn't care what those of us, us little people in Milwaukee County who voted no on the referendum, he doesn't care what we think. And he is back this year saying, I know, county board. You said no to a $60 wheel tax. You only gave me a $30 wheel tax. And by the way, of course, if you live in the city of Milwaukee, there's also an extra $25 wheel tax that attaches. So for every car you own, if you live in the city of Milwaukee, you pay a registration fee of $130 per year. Milwaukee County alone, so if you live in the suburbs, 105 And if you live outside of Milwaukee County, you pay 75 bucks. So in addition to the ridiculous taxes around here, the Abley administration is also sticking it to us in the form of the wheel tax. So anyhow, he, he's back. Abley has come back, and as part of his new budget, he said, all right, this is the deal. I, I want the $60 wheel tax. I refuse to take no for an answer. Now he, he's actually even ratcheted up this one more step. He's asking the county board to approve the $60 county wheel tax before the board adopts a final budget for next year. He is so hot to stick it to the residents of Milwaukee County that he wants to start getting the dough in right away. He says, here's the deal. Um, we need to start getting this money in right away. Um, to, we're, we're trying to raise $14.6 million more from the taxpayers of Milwaukee County. But to get this in, we need this implemented right away. So don't wait till you finish the budget process. Implement this wheel tax independently. Here, let's stick it to the county taxpayers. All right, our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand that you have, every once in a while, you run into an elected official that is unresponsive, arrogant, and completely uncaring of the wishes of the people that they serve. You run into that person every once in a while. And most times when you run into those types of politicians, they at least make a pretense. They at least try to pretend that they care about what you think. They, they at least make the pretense of that. Every once in a while, you run into an elected official who just doesn't even make that pretense. Not only don't they care what you think, they don't care if you know that they don't care what you think. That is Chris Abley. In a nutshell, you have the Milwaukee County Executive who has been told in a referendum by 70% more plus of the people who voted that this $60 wheel tax is out of the question. I actually think the outrage should be that the county board went and stuck a $30 wheel tax on top of the overall registration fee. But that ship has sailed. Now Abley is back saying, screw the referendum, forget what you did last year, I want this money, 
I want you to increase the taxes, and I want you to do it outside of the budget process so I can start getting the money even faster. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Abley wants $14-plus million. He wants it from those of us who live in Milwaukee County, and he wants it on top of the $14 million extra that we are already paying for the $30 wheel tax that went into effect last year. My question is, what should the county board tell the county executive? Yes, Mr. Abley, we understand that you are right. We understand what the voters said. We understand what we did last year. But you know what? We appreciate the fact that you are diligent and determined and refuse to take no for an answer. So here, we're going to stick it to our constituents to the tune of an extra $14 million on top of the $14 million tax increase that we gave last year on top of the property tax increases. All right, 414-799-1620. Should we give... Chris Abley, his way. 1042, this is Jeff Wagner. My answer is not just no, but hell no. And this, to me, people need to remember Abley's approach to this moving forward. The arrogance of a county official who does not care, does not care what people think. It's 1043, this is Jeff Wagner. It's 1046, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is the stunning arrogance of the county executive that just amazes me on this issue. Year ago, he comes out and says, I want a $60 wheel tax in Milwaukee County, which if he got it, all right, so do the math here, $75 that you pay the state, $60 in Milwaukee County, that would up it to 135 an additional $25 if you happen to live in the city of Milwaukee. So you're looking at 160 bucks to register your car if you live in the city of Milwaukee, Per year, um, 135, if Abley gets his way, in Milwaukee County. I, I mean, seriously? Now, of course, if you do this, more and more people are simply not going to register their cars. That That's going to be the effect of this. This is a regressive tax. It hits poor people a lot harder than it hits wealthier people. And But Abley, he doesn't care. A referendum says 70% of the people say no, um, and he says who cares? I, I'm going to push this through. All right, let me, our text line is exploding. This is one reason we moved out of the Milwaukee area. Taxation without representation. Um, let's see. Totally agree with you, Jeff, about Abley's wheel tax. Um, Abley, we will match your personal money. He has more money than God. Well, his father does, actually. This is Tony from Milwaukee. Keep in mind, if you have a truck with a B or C class plate, you pay even more for your plates. I have a Ford uh, F-250, and I think I pay around 190 If it goes up anymore, I'm just going to register my truck to my land up north. I think a lot of people will end up uh, doing things like that. Rocky says, absolutely not. Um, all right, interesting. Wheel tax solution. How about collecting all the fines from past due parking tickets? Interesting thing. Of course, that's not what we do. In the city of Milwaukee, matter of fact, they have days where if you come in and, and you just say, hey, I, I can't afford to pay the parking tickets, arrest warrants get issued, get, get dismissed, um, because, again, we don't want to harm people who can't pay to park. Um, here's the, the issue. Let's see. Bigger question, and this is one of the larger issues. We should. Why should we continue to fund county government? The process is antiquated and redundant. 
every service uh, county government supplies, so does the city and state agencies. Um, it would solve Milwaukee's safety issues. Kind of an interesting theory there. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, you might say to me, okay, Jeff, you know, the roads need to be repaired. You know, where are we going to generate the money? Well, first of all, keep in mind, we just put in a $30 wheel tax, all right? It's not like we don't have a wheel tax. We just raised an extra $14 million. Let's see how that is used. Let's see where that money goes before a year later we say we're going to now double that tax to 60. Where is that $30 that we are all paying now? Let's see how the county uses that. Plus, if you want to save money, I'll give you a couple good ideas. Let's just start with this stupid idea of the bus rapid transit system where you're going to tear up lanes of traffic all to save six minutes to run a bus between uh, downtown Milwaukee and the, the medical college complex. If you spend one dime of county money to subsidize those operating lines in that lane, it will be an absolute and total waste. So I'll tell you, you want to save some money quick? Any money you have budgeted to cover the operating costs of the bus rapid transit line, you do away with that. There's some dough right there. Let's talk to Gloria in southwest Milwaukee. Gloria, good morning. Uh, good morning. Oh, first of all, I'd like to say congratulations on your on your marriage. Thank you. I have outkicked my coverage once again. I am very pleased. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, very nice for you. Um, I was just going to say, why don't they resurrect the idea of uh, having toll roads on our freeways? Wouldn't that help to generate some of the money, too? Yeah. Well, I, thanks to call, Gloria. I mean, you, you couldn't just do toll roads in Milwaukee County. Matter of fact, well, I know it was in the state budget. I'm not sure if the governor vetoed the study out or not. I'd have to go back and look. But that was one of the things that was kicked around as we as we look at the overall transportation funding issue in the state. And I understand we I understand right now that the gas tax in and of itself and the registration fees isn't isn't making it. We have to we have to either figure out ways to be more efficient with our road improvements or to generate more money. We perhaps have to figure out a more fair way to, uh, again, tax people who are using the roads the most, make it more like a user fee. And I know one of the ideas that was out there was the toll road that you're talking about, Gloria. Now, again, you couldn't do it in just Milwaukee County alone. You'd have to do it you know, statewide. The idea that was thrown around is let, let's put up toll roads right at the outset, outside of the interstates. I, you know, as, as you come into, for example, from Illinois, I don't think that would survive legal challenges. That that's just me. But but I mean that that's down the road. So I mean I appreciate long term you want to look at stuff. I just think what strikes me about this whole thing is the just absolute and total arrogance of the county executive in having proposed something a year ago. All right, sixty bucks. He throws the idea out there. It is overwhelmingly rejected by the taxpayers. But he gets half a loaf. He gets half of what he wanted. And, and rather than letting to see how that plays out, he decides, I don't care if 70% of the people said no. I don't care if the county bore. And, and by the way, the opposition to this in a lot of the suburban counties, um, in, in a lot of parts of Milwaukee County, is is much higher even than that 72% that ended up voting no. But it's the arrogance of this elected official who doesn't care what you think, who's unwilling to accept no, and has the audacity to propose a budget. 
And that's what he did. He has a, proposes a budget that has like a $14 million hole in it. And he says, well, not my problem. It's got a $14 million hole in it. County board, you have no choice other than to, well, implement the gas tax. Well, they've got lots of choices. And as much as it pains me to defend the Clown Car Act that is a county board, this is one where if I'm looking at cutting things, I start looking at Abley's office and saying, how many aids and assistance does he really need? If we've got to figure out ways to plug a hole in a budget that he's created, maybe that's where it comes from, not from a double of a doubling of a wheel tax that was just put into place last year. It's 1053. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1056, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We've got some breaking news here. Jane Matinera from our WTMJ Breaking News Center. Jeff, northbound, northbound 43 at Calhoun Road. The right lane is blocked because of an accident. Two right lanes now are blocked. You're able to get past on the far left-hand side, but this is starting to cause some major backups. So if you're sitting in that area, this is why. Northbound 43, two right lanes blocked at Calhoun Road because of an accident. And we will have an update, of course, at the top of the hour with traffic. All right, a lot of stuff I want to continue to cover in the, the time remaining today. The um, I just I want to say this that I just you see these polls, and I, I I know when it comes to political polling, political polling has been awful over the last several years, and when you see these polls that come out. You, you want to say, I, I just, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. I don't think President Trump's approval rating is X or whatever. And and I understand why people feel that way, because polling has been so bad lately. So I understand why people are skeptical. But nevertheless, I say that, you know, when you have all these different polls that, that come to a similar conclusion, it, it says something. They're, they're not Maybe they're not actually able to measure where people are. And maybe when it comes to trying to figure out who's going to vote, they do a lousy job. But I, I do think it, it shows a public temperature. Every once in a while, though, there is a poll that comes out that I think is an unmitigated, complete and total load of horse hockey. And there is a poll out there today, USA Today, which is notoriously wrong. Suffolk University poll says that they they poll people on the, the NFL players deciding to not stand for the national anthem. Okay, Um, there's the poll. They say by a vote of by 51 to 42 percent. So, you know, a nine point spread. Those surveyed say the players protests are appropriate. I am wondering, pardon my French, who the hell they're 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 polling. The, the idea, now, this is inconsistent with most of the polls I've seen, where most people, it, it's about 60-40, people thinking, no, we don't think these overpaid athletes should be kneeling during the playing of the national anthem. This one says by 51 to 42 percent, those surveyed say the players' protests are appropriate. I'm just telling you, it is a gut feeling. It is not scientific, but we're, we're seeing that the scientific measures that pollsters use don't work out very well as either. You will never convince me that... More people think these protests are appropriate than think they are not. Now, they tied this in with a question about President Trump. And, of course, USA Today is no fan of President Trump. Um, Two-thirds of the polls voters say by 68 to 27, Trump's call for NFL owners to fire the players and for fans to boycott their games is inappropriate. 
I don't believe that number either. Now, that might be closer to 50-50, but I don't believe that number either. I think what they did is they found a bunch of people who don't like President Trump, rolled these two things in together, got numbers that they want, and have put that out there. NFL ratings are struggling. One of the reasons is the politicization of the game. And I don't don't believe these polls that suggest otherwise. It is 1059. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1109. Jeff Wagner, so glad to have you with us. 76 degrees outside. Um, We've really had quite a spell of Indian summer. And at least if you look at the um, next, the the forecast, while there's a little bit of rain in the forecast over the course of the next few days, you're not looking at a dramatic drop in in temperatures, a little bit of humidity today. But um, good weather. Enjoy this. Great weather for this time in October. All right. I want to... I want to pivot back to what happened Sunday night and, and yesterday in, in Las Vegas. And, and again, f- talk about it from the perspective moving forward. Have we learned anything? And is there something that, that can be done? Now, in Las Vegas, and I speak from this perspective as somebody who is a regular traveler to Las Vegas, there are cameras everywhere. Now, I, I know in, in many urban settings, for example, and in many hotels, you, you have you have cameras around. But in, in Vegas, there are more cameras than you can uh, imagine. If you're on the casino floor, there's all sorts of cameras, um, you know, watching pretty much anything that, that goes on. There's people that sit there and watch them. In Las Vegas in particular, not only do you have people watching the casino floor looking for card cheats or problems, but you have you know, security presence, you have people that will sit and regularly examine cameras. They've got cameras in hallways. They've got cameras in the parking garages. Now, as a general rule, um, these cameras aren't designed to try to identify, you know, mass shooters. I mean, what what they're trying to do is essentially um, limit theft, Maybe, you know, catch the drunks. Oh, look at those people in that elevator. Look what they're doing. You know, that type of thing. Um, find people who are wandering around the halls without a room. Find people who might be looking to, you know, rob other people. It, that that's, that's where hotel security really focuses right now, as opposed to, I don't know, trying to examine people's bags when they come in. I mean, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. If you've been to Las Vegas at a busy time, you know, you're there. You're, 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 it's it's a Thursday. It's a Friday afternoon. When you got everybody coming in from the weekend, it's check-in time. It's check-out time. You know, you you walk into these lobbies and you have hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Long lines of people waiting to check into the hotels. If and and of course, what the hotels want to do is the hotels want to get you in and to your room or checked out as quickly as possible because they want you to have a good experience. They don't. There's nothing more frustrating than standing in a line for an hour and a half to get a hotel room. So um, that's the idea. It's speed. It is efficiency. There is also a practical element that if you, for example, the Vegas hotels, you have huge parking structures that are attached to the hotels. And there's not just one entrance from the parking structures. Typically, you know, every floor on the parking structure, you know, you can go in and you can go directly into, you know, the hotel. You get into an elevator. Um, also, it's not like there's just one or two entrances to the hotels or the casinos. There, you know, you can. The idea is to get people in. It is the hospitality industry. It is the service industry. So, 
We don't screen people's luggage for weapons. We don't make people go through metal detectors every time they come into and out of a casino. As a practical matter, I, I don't know, again, you, you look at some of these big hotels, for example, that have 10, 15, 20 different entrances and exits. You know, what are you going to do? Close them all down and force everybody to go through one or have, you know, guards at, at every gate? Um, and of course, these casinos, keep in mind, and the hotels, they're open 24 7. I mean, Vegas, you know, never sleeps. As an aside, I don't mean to be flip, but, you know, the marketing campaign, what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. My guess is you're never going to see that one again. I I just, my my guess is after what happened, that will be shelved permanently. But anyhow, now we're having this conversation about should we do more to make hotels safe? Now, in some countries where acts of terrorism have been directed at, at hotels, um, you know, they, they've, they've toughened it. For example, in India, um, back in 2008, terrorists bombed two hotels in downtown Mumbai and attacked other sites around the city. In response, now there, there's x-ray systems that they set up, you know, throughout the country. Um, in New Delhi, one of their upscale hotels sets up face recognition software that allows employees to identify visitors as they approach the property. But but we don't do that as a general rule in the United States. That's not what the focus of hotel security is. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I don't want to underscore how horrible this was. But at the same time, this was, I think in many respects, a, a one-off. I'm going to be curious as to how the guy got all these guns into his room. I'm going to be curious if there's suspicious video on security camera showing him loading things and bringing them in from his car or whatever. I'm going to be curious as to whether there was maid service that went into his room for three days and, and why nobody noticed this arsenal that was being assembled. So I, I think there's some questions to be answered. But as a general rule... I don't think we need to be knee-jerk, and I don't think that, candidly, I don't think that even though this was a horrible thing, we need to have all of a sudden a sea change where you close 90% of the exits to a Las, entrances to a Las Vegas hotel. You require everybody to run their bags, whether they're coming in to stay in the hotel or they're just walking through the hotel, where you require everybody to go through security devices like TSA. I just don't think that's practical. I just think people perhaps need to be more vigilant. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we need to have a sea change in the way we approach hotel security? It is 1120. This is Jeff Wagner. The wait is over. You can now purchase your tickets to this year's WTMJ Holiday Radio Show to benefit Kids to Kids Christmas. Coming up November 27th at Turner Hall in Milwaukee, you can hear the story of how WTMJ saves Christmas. It's an original radio play this year. And see all your favorite voices live on stage. You get to be part of the studio audience. Tickets are on sale now. They're 25 bucks. portion of that goes to Kids to Kids Christmas. You go to papstheater.org. Tickets went on sale yesterday. I asked our, I, I asked Jay Pat Miller, who's our director of marketing for an update. We were about 50% sold out the first day is what he told me. So I, I mentioned that only because 
We always have a huge turnout. If you think you might want to go, you, it's going to sell out quickly. I mean, and, and there's just once it's sold out, it is sold out. So check it out. All right. Let's talk to David in Milwaukee. David, good morning. Oh, good morning. Is this Mr. Wagner? It is. Hello. Hello. What do you think um, about hotel security? Um, It's a joke. And I, I lived in Las Vegas for five and a half years, and I was in the wine business. So I've been in the bowels of the casino. Right. Um, and it, it, I always thought it reminded me of the movie Die Hard, where it would be very, very easy for a person to just take an extended van and park. And you mentioned the self-parking lot. Right. And just take the elevator up and just open up. And it, it, it would be like cutting butter. Well, I guess my my and I and I and obviously that's that that's sort of a version of of what happened here. I guess the question becomes as a practical matter and, and let's let's take Las Vegas where you have people who are coming and going all the time. You have multiple entrances to casinos and the hotels. Plus you have a lot of people who are walking through who are entering the entering the areas who aren't even staying at the hotels. You know, they're they're there to see the casinos. I mean, what 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 do you do? Do you make is it reasonable to say, okay, we're going to have metal detectors at every door, and we're going to staff it, and we're going to X-ray people's bags, um, like they do, for example, if you're going to Lambeau Field for a Packers game? Well, it's it's different now because now you actually have to pay for self-parking, right? Okay. Um, and that just happened within the last year or so, right? So I don't know if there are additional security procedures that they do when. I doubt when people, it. I doubt it. You know, probably not. No. Yeah, I, I guess but, I'm. I mean, I'm, but I'm, I'm. I'm trying to think of a situation like um, every once in a while when I go to Las Vegas, I I play golf. So I mean, I've got a I've got a golf bag. So the 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 cab or whatever, I go play golf. I'm staying at the hotel. They, they bring me back to the hotel. I, I get out. I've, I've got I've got the golf bag. Maybe it's in a travel bag with me. It's over my shoulder. I, I walk into you know the hotel or I'm walking through the hotel or whatever. Um, that is not an uncommon thing. You have business people that have briefcases. Uh, you know, once you're into the once you're into the casino part, then you've got access to the hotel. I mean, is is there a practical way that we can limit access to prevent something like this? Well, I mean, you you basically have to go through security to watch a Brewers game now. Yep. 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 But of course, I mean, and I appreciate that, right? And that for that event to go into a Brewers game, you're, you're right. You you got to go through the metal detectors and that. But is that let, let's take a place like Las Vegas where you're you're going into and out of casinos and into and out of hotels all, all the time. And at the Brewers games, you know, there's a limited number of, of entrances that they. You know, and that, that especially after everybody comes in, they close down most of those entrances. So if you come late, you can only go through one or two gates. I mean, can can you do that practically for a hotel in Las Vegas that's open twenty four seven? Not in the service industry, you can't. Yeah, yeah. I get. Yeah. Thanks. I guess that that that's my only point. I mean, I'm I'm not. This was a horrible, horrible thing, and I guess I I do have questions. I mean, I want to know. I'll be curious to know, does this guy show up on, does he show up on security cameras? How do you get 23 guns up to a hotel room and nobody notice? I mean, was, was it, 
And, you know, is it constantly going back and, and bringing stuff, you know, to the room, these different bags? Is it the same bag back and forth? Should the security cameras, should somebody have been watching it and been more vigilant? I mean, if you're looking for somebody who's, you know, trying to count cards and you're going to go after them, you know, should you should be spending as much effort looking at, gee, there's this guy who's been back and forth to the, the trunk of his car 15 times with the same bag over the course of the last day or two. Now, I'm not saying that happened, but, you know, maybe it ended up doing it. Should you be vigilant about that? And there might very well be a logical explanation as to why he's doing those things. But, I mean, is this something that if we were more vigilant, we could have caught? I'm just, and again, it's part of this this frustration that I have with the open society. We, you know... Something like this could have happened in a shopping mall. It, it just, it just could have. And I'm, I'm, you know, you don't want to give people ideas, but you know, okay, somebody smuggles one of these firearms in, and they start. Now, in this case, it was an arsenal, and it was on a high level. But you know, can we, can we set up metal detectors that you go through when you're talking about, like the caller was saying, like David was saying, the service industry? Okay, I mean, this is, I mean, you take a place, a resort town. Where, where Las Vegas, you've got people 24-7 going into and out of casinos that are attached to hotels. Uh, you know, I mean, occasionally, for example, I typically stay at the MGM. They'll set things up where in order to get up to the rooms, you, you've got to, they'll have a security guy there and you'll have to flash their, their card. But, you know, they're, they're not looking through people's backpacks. They're not looking through people's luggage. I mean, how practical is that? All right, 414-799-1620 is the number. We continue the conversation. It's 1126. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1128, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 161 meaningful games of baseball for the Brewers should be a positive. Greg Matzik isn't quite over the lack of postseason just yet. He'll explain why, and he'll take fans' thoughts this evening. Tune in to Sports Central at 7.07. Greg does an absolutely tremendous job. Um, you know, an interesting point. You know, and I understand that, for example, if you go to a ball game, you go to a, a Bucks game or a Marquette game or a Packers game or a Brewers game, like the, the caller was pointing out, we do have, I mean, there are enhanced security measures. And, I, I mean, I, 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 I support them um, entirely. But, I mean, keep in mind, that's different from a hotel. Um, Randy and Franklin makes the point in his text, with a Brewers game or a Packers game, once you're in, you can't go out and, and come back in again. As a general rule, right, you're not, you're not going in and out. In, in a hotel type of setting, whether it's Las Vegas or otherwise, you're, you're, you're going in and out. I mean, you're, maybe you're going for a conference. Maybe you're stopping off to have lunch. You're back and forth. You're walking up and down the strip, walking in and out of every hotel. I mean, what what it is going? What would it do if every time you have to go into a te- hotel, you have to you know go through the security? And how many entrances can you have? And I'm not poo-pooing the need for safety, and I'm not underplaying this horrible thing that happened. But at the same time, I do think you have to avoid a knee-jerk reaction. And my big question is, how did the guy get the guns up there? Was there something that showed up on the security cameras? And is this just a situation where perhaps if hotel security had been a bit more vigilant, we would have seen what the man was doing? That's my first question before we start talking about, well, we've got to have you know metal detectors and TSA-type screening at every door or every time you check into a hotel. Okay, um, there have been a string of... 
really sort of catastrophic weather events. First, you had the hurricane that hit the Houston area, dumping what it just seemed like it was going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, creating massive flooding, which required an amazing and incredible response from FEMA. Then you had Hurricane Irma that just sort of went up and down Florida and leaving wakes of devastation its past. Hit some of the keys, not all the keys, hit some of the keys hard, went up the West Coast. Um, uh, it, it, the only thing you can say is it, it could have been worse, but lots and lots of damage along the West Coast of Florida, lots and lots of people without power for a significant period of time, lots of flooding problems. FEMA has to respond to that. And this came just really a few days after you had the hurricane that hit the, the Texas area. Then on top of that, you have the hurricane, Hurricane Maria, that hits Puerto Rico and devastates the, the island. I mean, it's just I, there there was no electricity on the island. Um, and and a, as of I'm just looking at some numbers I was pulling up yesterday um, right now, only about and, and this is what a week or so even more after the hurricane hitting people with access to drinking water because they lost electricity. So you had all the water plants. They, they couldn't they couldn't filter the water or things like that. Access to drinking water, only 45%. Um, about two-thirds of the gasoline stations are now open. Electric customers with power, only 5%. 95% of the island is still without power. This is as of two days ago. About half of the supermarkets are open. Um, again, they've got shelters that are open. Uh, uh, two-thirds of the hospitals are open, but only about, let me do the math here, about 15% are connected to the electric grid. Functioning cell towers, only about 14%. 50% of major roadways are cleared, which means 50% still aren't. Um, open ports, and keep in mind, Puerto Rico is, of course, an island. So the way that you are going to get goods to them, the way that you're going to get the generators, the way the stuff you're going to get there is either through airlifts, um, but, of course, when there's no power at the airports, you, you can't fly in because the radar and things like that don't work. Um, now 75%, three-quarters of the ports are open. Currently, there are approximately 12,600 people on the island as part of the U.S. response team. Now, I understand if you are in the person, if you are one of the people who is caught in the middle of a natural disaster like this, you've got no running water, you've got no power, um, you've got, uh, again, you know, no access to, to food, the stores are, are open, and you've got, you know, your entire, in this case, the entire island absolutely devastated. Plus, it's not like you can just, you know, put relief efforts on trucks and do a convoy in. You are on an island. I understand how miserable you have to be. I can't imagine, you know, what it would be like to have, I mean, just just think what happens, how we treat it if our power goes out for two or three hours. We often treat it like it's the end of the world. This has been days and days and days, and most of the island is still without power. But, of course, this was a devastating sort of, of event. So over the weekend, you have the mayor of um, – you, you've got the mayor of San Juan who um, questions – 
President Trump and the disaster response. And, of course, this plays into a lot of the people who don't like Trump. Oh, yeah, this is terrible. He's doing this. If this was Texas, he wouldn't do it like this. If this was Florida, he wouldn't do it like this. This is because it's Puerto Rico and because it's a large Hispanic population, Puerto Rican population, whatever. He just he just doesn't care. Now, um, Trump, who is notoriously thin-skinned, responds um, by saying that the, the mayor who's saying these things is acting at the behest of Democrats who told her to be nasty to, to Trump. Um, uh, she says, well, I wasn't saying anything nasty about him. So he, again, he, he responds. He says, you know, people in Puerto Rico want everything to be done for them when it should be a community effort. 10,000 federal workers now on the island doing a fantastic job. The head of FEMA says that this is one of the most challenging logistical undertakings that this country has ever had to face, especially coming on the heels of what they have to do in Texas and what they have to do in Florida. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is another one of these situations where if I were advising the president, and he would listen, I would have advised him just to not get into a you-know-wedding match with the, the mayor of San Juan, that, that there you know, there is no reason for the president of the United States to necessarily say, oh, she, she was being nasty to me and, and she was being used as a political tool of the Democrats. I, I would have just advised him to avoid that. It doesn't serve any purpose. Having said that, though, I mean, it is realistically – is there more that this country should have been doing? I mean, let, let, let's again, let's put aside a, a Twitter battle, you know, between, you know, the mayor and between the president. You know, logistically and realistically, looking at the devast, looking at geographically where Puerto Rico is, looking at the scope of the devastation, keeping in mind that we're already occupied, still trying to help out people in, in Texas and in Florida. I mean, has the response been inadequate? 414-799-1620. And I will, I will tell you something. Again, regardless of whether or not the president should have responded in this way, I, I mean, I, I'm listening to the people from FEMA. They've got 12,000 aid workers, you know, on, on, on the scene. This is a very, very difficult undertaking. And it seems to me that they are, in fact, doing I mean, as much as they can under the circumstances and given the scope of this natural disaster. You're not talking about a situation where you have, gee, a part of the island now doesn't have power. Let's concentrate on that. You're talking about essentially the entire island, which is destroyed. The roadways, 50 percent, even after, you know, as of last Sunday, only 50 percent of the roads are were operational. They were cleared. That tells you what you are looking at. 414-799-1620. Was our response inadequate? Is it fair to criticize the president for not doing enough soon enough, regardless of whether or not he should have engaged with the mayor of San Juan? We discuss next. It's 1144. This is Jeff Wagner. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 
1147, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Let's see, uh, Mitch and Surgeon Bay writes, As hard as the somewhat isolated lower keys got hit, response aid could be driven there. Puerto Rico is an island making relief efforts a hundred times more difficult. Yeah, that's, that is one of the large factors. Here's another text. One reason for the slow response is how can the U.S. send ships with supplies when the hurricane was heading to South Carolina? So that's a factor as well. The geography clearly complicated this matter. I personally believe that you did have FEMA resources which were incredibly strained after what happened in Houston and after what happened in Florida. And I understand for people who are you know, on this island where it's 95 degrees and you've got no power and you only have 45% of the drinking water, people have access to drinking water because there's no power and there's no water filtration. I get the frustration and I understand why you want to have everything done you know, in a day or so but this was this was massive, and in all fairness, well, if I were advising the president, I would have told him not to engage in a Twitter war with the mayor of San Juan, who obviously wants everything done as quickly as possible. She's looking out for her constituents. That being said, I think some of the criticism of the U.S. response is candidly, it, it's it's unfair. Russ in Wisconsin Dells. Russ, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yes, good morning. My daughter, my wife and grandson are in Viegas, Puerto Rico. Okay. And I was able to get some cell reception. I guess ATT put a temporary unit up there as well as the Coast or the National Guard. There is nothing more that Donald Trump, President Trump could have possibly have done over there. And why do you say that? Well, I talked to the Coast Guard when the Hurricane Maria first went through. They had to go ahead and try to repair the ports, clean the ports and harbors out. The cranes are only at half capacity, and most of the ships that the Navy were sending there were side-loading and unloading ships. When you don't have a dock to be able to get the supplies off, it's pretty difficult. Right, and and then when you have the 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 entire infrastructure of of the island the roadways that are destroyed so even if you get the, the generators you get the stuff there then you have to figure out how to get it to different locations and if the roads are if the roads are destroyed it just makes the process even more complicated and again i i understand how how horrible it must be for a lot of people but at the same time sometimes when you have when you have a natural disaster of this level People need to be patient. Be told to be patient, and I get that nobody wants to hear "be patient." I get that. That's the problem in this country right now. Everybody wants everything right away, and it's an impossibility. You're a thousand miles away from the mainland United States. The Navy has put as much logistical ships, everything that they could possibly do to get to that island. Right. It's a logistical nightmare, though. Bridges are washed out. The right. roads are washed out. I mean, it's... <laughs> right. And, what and more the, can you possibly do? Right. And, and all the power lines are down. I mean, no, th- thanks for calling. I mean, the power lines are down. I mean, so you, you have the, the electrical plants that aren't operating because of the flooding and all that. You know, and it is... And, and look, and I, I get it. I mean, I do understand... I understand how horrible this must be. And, and I'm not being unsympathetic, which is why... I, I think it would have been in the president's interest not necessarily to try to, you know, pick a fight, 
you know, I, and, and whether the mayor of Puerto Rico challenged him or not, I, I mean, you got under—I mean, you got to understand where she's coming from. She wants; she's got constituents who need things, and constituents who are complaining, and constituents who don't want to hear. Well, we, we can't do this till Tuesday or whatever. And I understand all that. And so, why engage? That, I mean, that would be my question to the president. But that doesn't necessarily change the fact that you know, could we have done? Could we have done stuff faster? Dick and Grafton. Dick, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, while I think the response was very robust, I think there's a couple of things that could have been done better. First of all, um, th- there was a crisis in the nursing homes in Puerto Rico, as we saw what happened in, uh, in Texas when the power went out. The USS Comfort was spun up only last week, like five days or six days after the hurricane went through, it takes four to five days to get the ship manned and loaded and out to sea. In, in my mind, when they saw that, that a, a Category 4 or 5 was headed towards all those U.S. territories, they should have been working on getting that thing ready to go and even had it out in the ocean as the hurricanes came. Uh, there's 1,200 beds in, on, the, on the ship. And its capabilities, if you go to Wikipedia and look up USS Comfort, are really unbelievable as far as as medical care. The other thing that I think could have done, and maybe this was done and we're not aware of it, but the United States has a tremendous amount of charter freight aircraft available. What kind of a deal does... does, FEMA have, like with Evergreen Aviation or Coletta Air, as far as being able to use their 747s to move massive amounts of material and people. Now, are you talking about doing it before the storm hits? Af- after yeah. the storm, immediately after the storm, mm-hmm. as soon as you can get the runways cleared. Yeah, and of course, now, thanks, of course the problem with that, Dick, was that the because they, they lost all power, I mean, there were several days where you, you weren't able to get flights in. I mean, I guess, I, I, and I understand that, and, and I think it's fair to kind of look at the response and say, all right, you know, could we have gotten the ship out earlier? I mean, got this one note, um, they have a massive amount of supplies in port, and the container company cannot get more into the port. They can't deliver them by truck. No drivers, no passable roads. So, I mean, I think there's a, a, a lot of this stuff that is going on. And, you know, could you have gotten the ship there, you know, on could you have gotten something there perhaps a little bit quicker? Maybe at the same time, did you know that it was going to be devastation of this level? Another text, logistics of this disaster after two other storms has FEMA pump run overtime. And that that is true. I mean, you got to keep in mind, too, this is three things back to back to back. Also, FEMA is 1,500 miles away. I do think the logistics are the issue. And again, I, I think you can go back and you can micromanage this and you can say, okay, maybe we should have done this or that. That This idea that, well, President Trump hates Puerto Rico or President Trump, uh, th- this is just because their people are Hispanic and this wouldn't have happened in Miami or it wouldn't have happened in Houston. You've got to keep in mind the logistics of this were different. 